What is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Law and promise, faith and works, Judaism and Christianity. Quite simply, the difference is Christ. And that's why Paul is so concerned about Christians slipping back into the law. To do so is to nullify what Christ did on the cross, to make his death a needless gesture. Paul is very concerned about anything that depreciates Christ, who he is, or what he's done. Anything that takes him out of the picture, that takes him off center stage, is anathema to Paul. Not only because Christ belongs there, but because if we remove Christ from his rightful place in our lives, we lose our salvation. So Paul wants Christ to be foremost in our minds. And that becomes very evident in our text for today. In seven verses, Paul uses the name of Christ six times. And we discover five major thoughts about Christ and our relationship to Him in those seven verses. So let's focus on Christ this morning in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. And the first thing Paul tells us is that the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. That by it we have been led to Christ. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Now, the phrase, before faith came, is a little misleading. You know, it sounds as if faith is something new, that there was a time when faith didn't exist. But Paul's already made it clear that Abraham was justified by faith. And all who come, who have ever come to God, come on the basis of faith, by trusting him, by trusting his word. And his promises, that's always been the case. So faith is nothing new. The problem is that the translators left out the article. It actually says, before the faith came. The word faith isn't being used in the subjective sense of our faith, our trust, but in the objective sense, the object of our faith, the focus of our faith, the embodiment of the promises. And that, of course, is Jesus. Paul is saying that before Christ came, Believers, those who had faith in God, were kept in custody under the law. Literally, it says, under law, we were guarded. Now, that can indicate restrictive custody, a prisoner who's locked up because of a crime, or protective custody, someone being kept safe from harm 
And both ideas actually come into play here. Paul says they were being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. They were in custody and did not have access to the faith. But since we know that the faith that was coming brought with it pardon, what we have here is a picture of believers held in custody while awaiting pardon. They were guilty of transgressing the law and deserved to be in custody. But the law, while restricting them, was actually protecting them. It was keeping them from being destroyed by lawlessness, all the while holding out the promise of a coming pardon. They didn't yet have access to the faith, but they did have faith that God was going to do something to set them free, which he did when the object of our faith, the Messiah, came. The law kept them in custody until Christ came. And Paul says the law acted as a tutor to lead them to Christ. Now, some translations use a word schoolmaster or schoolteacher. But that's really not the thought here. A tutor in Roman society was a trusted servant given responsibility to oversee the moral welfare of boys, in particular, between the ages of 6 and 16. It was a tutor's responsibility to escort him to school, to protect him from danger, and to keep him from temptation. And he did so until the boy became a man and had hopefully developed the character to make wise decisions on his own. Now, maybe a, a better word for us would be nanny or governess, someone like Maria in The Sound of Music, you know, someone other than a parent charged with the responsibility of raising the children. The law was intended to be a nanny for the Jews, to keep them safe, and to lead them to Christ, the one through whom they could find forgiveness and be justified in God's eyes, the one who could cancel out their debt of sin, pardon them, and set them free from the law. The law did that for the Jews of faith, and it does the same for us. Today, the law reveals the character of God and it exposes our sinfulness. You know, no one will accept what Christ has to offer until he's been made aware of his need for what is being offered. So it's imperative that we still teach the demands of the law, the nature of sin, and coming judgment. People have a hard time believing that. They have a hard time believing they are sinners. And if they don't believe they're lost, they will never sense a need to be saved, even if we sing about it. And we should. They've got to be lost before they even want to be saved. The law is what leads us to Christ and to faith. In him. 
verses 25 through 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, the translator, uh, translators left out the article. <laughs> I, I don't understand why they keep leaving it out here. He's really saying now that the faith, the faith, the embodiment of faith, has come. Now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law. Now that is not to say that the law has no place in our life after becoming a Christian. It still reveals to us the mind of God on specific matters. It tells us what is right and wrong, how to order our society and our lives. Now, the law is extremely important for relationships between men. They need some controls. But it's not the means through which a relationship is established with God or maintained. You know, we can't earn a relationship with God or maintain a relationship through the law, because the demands of the law, absolute obedience in every detail, are simply too great. But still, it's a valuable guide. It's an important guide for life. And we respect it. And we try to abide by the things it taught us. The same way we would respect a nanny that raised us and loved us. You know, we wouldn't forget everything she taught us and did for us just because we were no longer under her authority. Now, I didn't have a nanny, so I can't speak from experience. But my best friend growing up did. Minerva was great. <laughs> we loved her. She was more a mom to those kids than somebody else lived in the household. Minerva was held in high regard by Mike even after she ceased being his nanny. And so it is with love. Love of the law. We, we love the law. We respect the law. We want to obey the law. But we realize that our relationship with God is not dependent upon perfectly obeying its demands. We're not earning a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We've been given one. Through faith in his son. In fact, Paul says, we became sons of God through faith in his son. By trusting in him and allowing him to make us part of the family. By trusting him to make us acceptable to the father. Now, the law still tells us how to please our father and we strive to do so. But we know that our relationship does not depend on pleasing Him all the time. You know, if we fail Him, He'll forgive us. As long as we love Him and are trusting His Son to keep us in a good relationship with Him, we have security in the family of God. As long as we have faith in Christ, we are sons of God. And our Father won't cast us out any more than a good earthly father would would cast out a son who acts up or disobeys. He continues to love us. 
And then notice that Paul says we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that's very important. Because that is saying that sonship comes through faith in Jesus. And that means it is not automatic. That not everyone is in a family relationship with God. Now, that thought goes against the grain. There's a common assumption that God is everyone's heavenly Father. The Scriptures do not confirm that. He's everyone's Creator. But we enter into a family relationship with Him through faith in His Son. It's essential that we choose to come back into relationship with our Creator. Sin has cut everyone off from a relationship with their Creator. And it's only through Christ that anyone can be adopted back into the family. Paul uses that phrase in other passages. We're adopted back into the family of God. Our relationship with God is dependent upon faith in Christ. In fact, if we have faith in Christ... We will clothe ourselves with Christ. Verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, Paul is not arguing for the necessity of baptism here, so I won't either. He's merely stating a fact. All who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. Now, while some do insist that being baptized into Christ has nothing to do with water baptism, I'm convinced that comes from a preconceived prejudice against baptism. I was at a conference years ago where the the preacher who does not practice water baptism said, some of you out there, every time you see the word baptism, you smell water. He said, but it's not there. And I said, oh, yes, it is. (laughs) It is there. I think it's obvious that Paul is talking about water baptism here. And most commentators do agree. They don't all agree the importance of it, but they agree that's what he's talking about. Paul is saying that when we express our faith in Christ by being baptized, by being immersed into Him, we clothe ourselves with Christ. We cover ourselves with Him. We take off an old garment and put on a new one. And Isaiah makes it very clear that we do have an old garment that we need to get rid of. He says all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And notice he says, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. What does that say about our unrighteous deeds? Obviously, it's time to change clothes. And Jesus makes that possible. When we're baptized into Christ, we are clothed. With Christ. Our old man is washed away and Christ covers us with Himself. 
The ancients symbolized this by putting on a white robe after coming out of the water. We are clothed with Christ. So when God sees us, he sees his son. And that's what gives us confidence. The confidence we need to come before that holy God we've been singing about. The holiness of God is something we can't even comprehend. But if we get just a little glimmer of it, it would frighten us. It would throw us on our faces to think we're coming into his presence. If we were being viewed in our filthy rags. Christ gives us the confidence we need to come before him. Because when we come before him, he doesn't see us and our sin. He sees his son who has clothed us with himself. And that's true of everyone who's in Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, the law creates differences and distinctions. Degrees of righteousness, at least in our eyes. The kind of thinking that says, you know, I'm more righteous than you because... I've obeyed more laws than you have. And I didn't break the big one, whichever one that might be, like you did. You know, under law, we're always comparing and judging each other. I'm better than you because I follow more laws than you do. That's the nature of law. But in Christ, all are equal. Because all are debtors of His grace. All are sinners saved by grace. And when we realize that the only thing that makes us acceptable to God is our relationship with Christ, that He cleansed us and He clothed us with Himself, and that's what God sees, all distinctions are gone. In God's eyes, there's no difference between Jew and Greek. Slave and free, male and female, our race, social standing and gender make no difference to God. And they are not barriers to fellowship in his kingdom. Now, that's not to say that those things are obliterated when we become Christians. We don't lose our ethnic heritage, our station in life or our sex, when we become Christians. And we don't disregard them. We still pay honor to whom honor is due. We respect those in positions of authority over us. We treat with deference those who are to be treated accordingly. We still open doors for women and protect our wives. But our differences are not handicaps before God nor walls of division between us. We become one in Christ. And we are on equal footing before God. We are there by grace, and He loves us equally. In fact, 
we now belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Our relationship to God is conditioned by only one thing, our relationship with his Son. If we belong to Christ, we are sons of God and friends of God. And as such, we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To belong to Christ means he owns us. We've given ourselves to him. He is our Lord, our master, our boss. And if we've given ourselves to him, in response to him giving himself for us, we are heirs according to promise. We become friends of God, like Abraham. And we've been given an eternal homeland and promise of life in his presence forever. All that is possible if we belong to Christ. And it is only possible if we belong to Christ. Everything depends on Christ. He's the difference. Nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how spiritual you are, how many good works you do. The only thing that matters is your relationship to Christ. That's not a popular message in our pluralistic society today, but it is the truth. Everything depends on Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we really belong to Christ? You know, it's possible for us to be good people and to come to church and do good works and have great Christian friends and never really belong to Christ. It's imperative that we understand what sin has done in alienating us from our Creator. It's imperative that we understand that Christ is the only one who can bridge that gulf. We have to trust in Him. We have to give our faith to Him. We have to give ourselves to Him. We have to be clothed by Him. If we've not done that, we do not belong to him, and therefore we do not belong to God. Our Creator will simply be our judge, not our Heavenly Father. Christ makes all the difference. Do you belong to him? Have you intentionally given yourself? to him. That's the question I leave you with this morning. Were you led to Christ by an understanding of sin? Have you clothed yourself with him through baptism? Did you become one in Christ with all the saints? Did you become part of God's family and get a sense of community with God's people?
All of that is possible through Christ, and it can be yours. If you'll just give yourself to him and trust yourself to him, come to him. If you don't belong to Christ, let me assure you he wants you. He wants you. He died for you. He died for you. Jesus, I come. That's our prayer this morning. Let's stand.